The Lord's kept you. The Lord has kept all of us. And so I'm very grateful for this opportunity for us to once again press together and study together and go through the word of God and to learn some beautiful things from his word. The Lord has impressed upon my heart uh, some time ago that the need to study God's plan of salvation and how he actually goes about saving us. Uh, the Lord has really impressed this on my heart because I, I've, I've uh, had the privilege of talking with individuals who are pastors, elders, evangelists, missionaries, medical missionaries, and the list goes on. And, and uh, I can't say to my surprise, but nevertheless, I have seen that there are people who are even advanced in the gospel, in the work of the gospel, that still do not really understand what must they do to be saved. And, um, you know, it, of course, we say, well, you're a pastor. How could you not know that? Or you're what? But Nicodemus was a rabbi. Nicodemus was a great teacher in Israel. But he did not understand the plan of salvation. And if that can happen to Nicodemus, I think that can happen to any of us. And so obviously, I do my own heart searching. I search my heart often. And uh, as I search my own heart and as I consider the conversations and counsels that I have with others, there is no question in my mind that this is a subject that needs to be agitated. This is something that we as God's people need to make sure we're clear on. And that by his grace, we can receive what he came to give. And so as we prepare our hearts to go through this study, uh, part one, we talked about our condition, the reality of the fall of man and, and you know, the fact that because of our fallen nature, we have a natural tendency to do that which is against God. But through the plan of redemption, we saw how God can help us overcome even the clamors of our carnal, sinful nature and how God can give us victory. In our second session, we talked about what God wants to deliver us from in the plan of redemption, which is sin, but not just the external acts of sin, but also the sins of the heart, especially the foundational sin of the heart, which was pride. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the key ways that God establishes his principles of salvation in the heart of men and women, just like you and me. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So as we prepare our hearts to receive the word, I'm going to once again go to my knees for a word of prayer. I'd like to invite you to join me in that if you're able to. And if you're not able to kneel, just bow your heads where you are. But let us all pray as we ask God to prepare our hearts to receive the word. Our loving Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity. It is such a privilege to serve you. It is a privilege to come to know you. And Lord, we thank you just for this time on this, your holy Sabbath day of rest, that we can hear you speak to us as we on earth remain silent before thee. Lord, we pray, please forgive us of our sins. We ask you to block out anything that would prohibit us from hearing your words. And we pray that you would make your words so plain to our hearts that we will know that God has come down to commune with the people here at Open Door. And Lord, I pray this not just for us, but for all the congregations throughout this world that have chosen to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. May you anoint your ministers, anoint each and every one of us, and grant us that which we need most, a beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen.
There's a very important question that I think all of us would do well to consider. What does God want us to know about him? And what exactly is it that he wants us to know about him? And the thing that I love about God is that while he lets us know the things that he wants us to do, he also lets us know why. And there's a statement that God says in the book of Jeremiah. It is in Jeremiah 9, and I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles there, that God makes it clear what he wants his people especially to know about him, that we may appreciate as well as follow his counsels. It's found in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to chapter 9, and we're considering verses 23 and 24. Now, when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. I want to make sure that we're all there and that we can review these words together as the Lord speaks to our heart. In our world today, especially when we accomplish things, um, you know, I remember, you know, it's, we all have a background. We all have a history. And for my background and my history, I, I, I was so thoroughly uneducated. I mean, just thoroughly. And it wasn't because my parents kept me away from school. I just didn't like school. And so I wasted so much precious time going to school just trying to have fun rather than gaining an education. And I remember that when I joined this church, this church is the reason why I love reading. It's this church that did it. It was God working through this movement because I never came in contact with so much intellectual stimulus. It's like I've been religious before, but, you know, it's just in every other religion, it's all about how you're feeling. It's all about how the spirit moves you. You know, that was more so the religion that I was walking with. But it was this movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it, it really encourages education. It encourages reading. And that was a habit that I did not minutely develop. And as I began to read and as I began to understand things, I was shocked that my mind could even retain information. I just didn't know that. It was a discovery at 20 years old. And here it is that as I'm reading and studying the word of God, now I'm getting to this place where, yep, understand a few things. I discovered this ability to remember stuff. I didn't even know I could do that. And as I began to go through these steps, this temptation started to kick in. Because you could remember things, that means that you are really wise and you're really smart. Because you know how to answer questions quickly, that means you're something more than what you really are. And before you know it, I began to boast in my heart, never with my mouth, of how smart I became, how much now I understand. I would look at Psalm 119, and I would especially love verses 90 to 100, where David would say, as a result of the study of the testimonies, he has become wiser than his teachers. And I would begin to claim those verses on my own, a very, very subtle pride. And what I have found, my brothers and sisters, 
is you have gifts and talents. I have gifts and talents. And whether it's in our heart or out of our mouths and in our actions, sometimes we found ourselves boasting. We found ourselves thinking more of ourselves than we should. Whether it be from our strength, our mental acumen, our business savviness, or whatever it may be, and we began to think more of ourselves than we should. I believe this is one of the reasons why God had written in Jeremiah 9 what he had written. The Bible says in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, it says, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. God says, don't glory in any of these things. Why does God tell us not to glory in any, in any of these things? Because the Bible says, all things have come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Everything that we have that's good, everything that is you know, wise or powerful or whatever it is that we're able to do, it's all because of the grace of God. The Bible says in Acts 17 and verse 28, in him we live, move, and have our being. We have no boasting point. There's nothing of us to boast. How can we impress God? It all came from him. So he says, don't glory in these things. But then he tells us what to glory in, in verse 24. He says in verse 24, but let him that glorieth glory in this. In other words, if you're going to boast about something, boast about this. That you understand and you know me. God says, if you're going to glory in something, if you're going to boast in something, boast in the fact that you understand who I am. Boast in the fact that you know who I am. We know for a fact God knows us, but the real question is, do we know him? That's the question. Because there was a time that Jesus was around a bunch of teachers of righteousness, and Jesus said, you neither know me nor my father. But they were teachers of religion. God knows us, but not every one of us knows God. So God says, so when you do understand me, God says, when you do know me, God says, that's a glory point. And then he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say, if you're going to glory, glory in the fact that you understand and you know me. But then he goes into specificity when he says these next statements. He says... Let him that glorious glory in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercises three things. What are the three things? Loving kindness, what else? Judgment, what else? Righteousness, where? In the earth. For in these things I delight. If there are three things that God wants every single one of us to know, is his loving kindness, his judgment, and his righteousness. When somebody sits down and says, hey, tell me your name, I don't say, mm, Dwayne, well, let me think about that. It's, it's, it's like when somebody says, what's your name? I'm, I immediately, I'm Dwayne. Dwayne what? Dwayne Lemon. Dwayne what Lemon? Dwayne Everett Lemon. It's like, it's no problem for me to go ahead and just spit it out. That's my name. That's who I am. I know who I am. When were you born? March 22, 1972. What's your parents' name? Wilson and Lorraine Lemon. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a problem. There's certain things in life that you just know. 
God says, I want you to know me. God says, I want you to know me and I want you to understand me. And then the things that I want you to know and that I want you to understand is that I am the Lord that always exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And certainly with God having a people called Laodicea, living in a Laodicean time, a people of the judgment, we should be the best at understanding judgment. We should be the best at understanding his loving kindness. We should be the best at understanding his righteousness. And this is why, if we just focus on this one, today we focus on one point. The whole week could be spent on loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. But just today, I just want to give a little bit of time on his loving kindness. And there's a reason I want to focus on his loving kindness. When a man and when a woman is saved, we have to realize that us receiving salvation is in and of itself is not even an act of our own. Because when we respond to the voice of God, that's exactly what it is, a response. Meaning he was already talking and he was already communicating. And then what ends up happening is a time comes where our eyes are open and now we respond to him talking and we respond to him communicating. You see, the Bible declares a powerful principle in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. God said in Jeremiah 31, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with what kind of love? With an everlasting love. And therefore it says, therefore with loving kindness have I done what? Drawn thee. So how does God draw people to himself? With loving kindness. How do we draw people to Christ? With loving kindness. Are you following that? So if I were to be a soul winner, I need to be loving, I need to be kind. If you're not loving and if you're not kind, that becomes our first work. That becomes something to say, Lord, teach me how to do that. When I first joined the church, I didn't care about learning how to be loving and kind. I learned about how to answer questions how to answer objections, how to become thoroughly understanding in 2,300-year prophecy, 490-year prophecy, and the rest. I used to get off the bus in Queens, New York, 15-minute, 20-minute walk to my house, and I'd get off the bus and say, all right, 490-year prophecy. When did it begin? 457 B.C. How do you know that? Because Daniel said in Daniel 9:24, at the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, how do you know? when God began to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Well, King Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 6 and 7. Well, wait a minute. Weren't there two other establishments of Jerusalem? Yes, the first one was under Cyrus and the second one was under Darius. So why can't you include that? I'm literally doing this talking to myself as I'm walking home from the bus. And this wasn't the time when they really were popular using Bluetooth yet. So people are seeing a brother walking around talking to himself. <laughs> you know, but I could care less because I was excited. I was like, man, I'm learning stuff. I was infatuated with the idea of being accurate. I mean, I really wanted to be accurate. And so I had to have all my dates lined up, 457 BC, AD 27, AD 31, AD 34, 1844 years later, then we arrive at such and such, 1810 years later, etc. It's like I had to know my numbers and everything else, but loving kindness was not on the menu. And it showed. It showed. 
It showed. I became very, very knowledgeable in the Word of God. Very knowledgeable. I began to understand a lot of stuff. But I remember one time I was doing a study, and this person was, uh, I was doing a study with a family. One of the members of the household was homosexual. I didn't know that at the time, but I found out later on he was gay. And I remember that as I was going through the Bible with the family, he began asking questions about homosexuality, what does God say? And, you know, I would tell him, I said, well, you know, God says that this is a lifestyle that he does not accept, but he meets people where they are, and he brings them up higher in him. And he didn't like even that answer, and I remember he kept agitating the Bible studies. Like, he would always be disruptive. Now, remember, I'm a Bible teacher. I'm trying to share the word of God with these people. And I remember that it got to a point that I was doing Bible study, and he kept doing all sorts of things to make noise and be disruptive in the Bible study. And I remember that after a period of time, I started to get upset. I started to get bothered. And I remember at a certain point in the study, and he was intentional of being disruptive. At a certain point in the study, I addressed him. And I addressed him in a very unloving, unkind manner. And I remember that as I stepped to him and was addressing him, he just looked at me like, uh-huh, just what I expected. That whole Bible study became an absolute failure. I spent all this time wanting to know the doctrine, wanting to know it well, being thoroughly accurate in my answers. And all along, I forgot, oh, God actually wanted me to have a heart just like his. A heart that's loving. A heart that is kind. Brothers and sisters, if anybody is truly one to Christ, please keep this in mind. Satan also is involved in soul winning. Are you aware of that? Satan is also involved. Can I prove it? Go to Matthew 23. Let me just show you something very quickly. You look at Matthew 23. I want you to see Satan is also involved in soul winning. Not every soul winning effort is ordained of heaven. There are many gimmicks and there's many ideas on how to win souls. But the reality is, beloved, is that sometimes we could win souls and be doing the devil's work when we thought we were doing God's. And the Bible proves it. One day, our beloved Jesus, one day, our beloved Savior, you remember that he spent all these years, all this time, trying to win people that didn't want to be won. They were called Pharisees. And Christ was trying real hard to reach them. And he would try and try and try. And boy, were they trying to do everything to frustrate Jesus's opportunities and abilities to win souls to the truth for the time. A time finally came where Jesus saw that the people were so locked under the leadership of the priesthood. The people were conflicted. They kept saying to themselves, man, every time Jesus talks, it's so convicting. He's right. But then they would say, but wait, but these are the priests. These are the men appointed by God. They have to be right too. And the people were having a war in their minds. And do you know Jesus in all of his discernment saw that war? And Jesus said, it is time for me to do something that I have never done in my ministry otherwise. Jesus calls all the Israelites, be Israelites. 
The scribes and Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. All that they say do, but do not follow their actions. For they say, and they do not. This is the first time Jesus is publicly, with scathing rebuke, mingled with tears in his eyes and in his voice. He rebukes these leaders. He rebukes the leaders. He had to break the spell that was on the minds of the people. He gets to a point of putting out these woes to the Pharisees, and look at verse 15. When he gets down to verse 15 of Matthew 23, he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, and what does he call them? Hypocrites. Why did he call them hypocrites? He said, because you compass, this is the verse, you compass, you go all over sea and land to make one proselyte, to win souls. And then he says, and when they are one, what did they actually make of that soul that they won? Twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Not every evangelistic method is ordained of heaven. And if there's one thing that God wants to make clear of how souls are one, it's not by fake love. It's by real love. I don't know if you've ever been to a car dealership. For some reason, car dealerships. Is there any car salesman in here? Listen, I got nothing but love for you. I'm just letting you know. Nothing against car, you know, car salesmen, all right, or salespeople, period. Good people, I pray you are. I trust you are. But often when we think of the deceptive environments in the commercial life, we think of car dealerships. We think of these sharks that are there, just like, hey, buddy, how you doing? And, you know, they're just ready to go ahead and get you in, right? Sell you something you don't need, sell you a, uh, hate this word, lemon. You know, they, 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 you know, they, we, we, you know, we just say they're going to do that. <laughs> One day I'm going to do a study on the benefits and the blessings of lemons. <laughs> There's many. But isn't it amazing how we can go to certain environments, meet certain people, and almost from the beginning we could see something's off? Something, you're just trying to sell me something, right? Do you know people could see that sometimes in our evangelistic efforts? Sometimes people could see, do you really believe what you're saying? You really believe what you're talking about? It's imperative that we believe our message. The message we give should first be the message we believe. The Jesus we present to others to love should be the Jesus we love. And the Bible is ever so clear. God loves us with an everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness, he draws us. And so it is that when we engage in soul winning, it's going to be nothing short of what God had. We must have love and we must be kind. And if you're struggling with that, that's okay. Praise God, you at least recognize the struggle. It's a good thing to even recognize, Lord, I have a struggle loving people. And I'm not talking about the people that are good to us. I'm talking about the people that's really, really not good to us. God loves them too. We should love them too. But I want you to remember that the way God saves people is with loving kindness. That's what he reveals and uses it to draw them to himself. Now, more specifically, where does this loving kindness come from? How did he do it? John 12 and verse 32. The Bible says, and I, if I be what? Lifted up from the earth, I will 
draw all men unto me. What is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to the cross. And so when, and this is a very good thing for us as Seventh-day Adventists to understand, let alone for those who are not part of the Seventh-day Adventist church or community. While we in the Advent band believe in a sanctuary and we believe in the law of God and we believe in the specifics of the law, the Sabbath, etc., it is the love of Christ revealed on the cross that draws people to say, I need God. It is not to take away from the law of God, God forbid. It is not to take away from the sanctuary truth, God forbid. It's not to take away from any of the present truths. But we need to somehow figure out, and I'm going to show you in a slide, we need to figure out how to communicate the cross in the present truth. I remember sitting under one evangelist one time and he said, the cross is behind us and the most holy place is before us. And he put the cross behind us. And a whole lot of the church said amen. And I remember saying, oh no. I said, that's dangerous what that brother just said. Because anytime you focus more on law than love, you become a very hard ventist. Seriously, you're going to become hard. You're going to become a present truth gangster. You're going to be a rough and tough guy. And you're going to, you know, you, we're going to misconstrue the gospel. Law and love always go hand in hand. Can I prove it? Go to John chapter 1. If you look at John chapter 1 in the description of Jesus, law and love are perfectly combined. This is what we must plead with God as Lord. Teach me how to commingle law and love as I seek to know you as well as to make you known to others. In the Gospel of John, we're considering chapter 1, and I love this. Do you know that this is our work? In the fact that Jesus says, look, I'm waiting for my character to be reflected in my people. Once I see that, I can come and take you home. That's what he's waiting for. So every time we see 2010 switching to 2020, 2020 switching to 2030, the only reason that's happening is because Christ has still not gotten what he wants. That's it. We are the holdup, not him. He's making it very clear. I'm just waiting for the perfect reflection of my character in my people. Once that happens, I will come quickly. Isn't that what Revelation says? Behold, I come how? Quickly. The only reason he doesn't come quickly is because if he came quickly now, we die. Because sin cannot survive in the presence of a holy God. So while we say, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, there should be a side of us that says, thank you, Lord, for not coming yet. Because if he came and would have said, hey, 99% you got right, but one thing thou lackest. And because sin remains in the heart, I have to destroy sin where it's found. God is coming back not to destroy people. He's coming back to destroy sin, period. But he has to destroy sin where it's found. And if we still have sin within our hearts, then God says, I must destroy it where it's found. Now, God wants us to understand that he says, look, the whole purpose of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to come that I might deliver my people and that I will draw them unto me and that they might be saved. 
But the way that this works is only the cross of Calvary. And the cross of Calvary is the most magnificent revelation of the love of God. And I want you to watch this, because remember, today, while we have a most holy place message and all, we must remember that the love of God is still central to that message. And the balance of the gospel and the character of God is in John chapter 1. Look at what it says in verse 14. In John 1 and verse 14, we're talking about not merely the fact that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but now we're in John 1, and now in verse 14, the Bible says, and the Word was made what? The Word was made flesh. Divinity and humanity came together, right? Then it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What's the next word after Father? Full. When something's full, is there any room for anything else? No. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, he was full of two things. What were the two things? Grace, truth. Grace, this mercy and love of God, all of these wonderful things. Truth, standard principles and righteousness. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth at the same time. This is the goal of what he wants to accomplish with you and me. He wants us to be full of grace and full of truth. And you know who learns these lessons, who's in position to learn these lessons best? Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. It's not that single people can't learn it, but those who are in position to learn it best Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. Because we're going to have interactions with people that are different from us and have lots and lots of opportunities to learn how to demonstrate grace and truth at the same time at the appropriate times. Jesus says, this is what I'm waiting for. So the way that he saves us is not by eliminating law just to replace it with love, as some would teach. It is not by eliminating love and just focusing on law. But it is a balance of the two. So law and love in the Bible always go together. Don't ever forget that, beloved. Law and love in the Bible go together. And we see that through the life and example of Jesus Christ. So when he comes to save us, he brings law. That's not the issue but it is supersaturated with his love. Every act and every effort, even every rebuke, is based on self-sacrificial love for the soul that he speaks to. Now, when we think of the cross, we have to understand the story of the cross should be the science for each and every one of us. This is what we should be studying greatly and in depth is the cost of the cross. Because when it happened, there was a cost. There are three things for us to consider with the cost of the cross. Let's look at the first one, the sacrifice. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to consider the sacrifice. Three things that we are to consider when we look at the cost of the cross. Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, we're considering chapter 2, and we're just looking at the cost. What did it cost that you and I might receive this ever so sweet salvation that Christ has made available to each and every one of us. Hebrews chapter 2. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says in Hebrews 2 and verse 17, it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him 
to be made like unto who? His brethren. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So according to the Bible, Jesus was moved by love to be made just like you and me. I'm just telling you, family, that alone is worthy of study. The fact that he held a very high position and was willing to take a very low position just so he could save us. It behooved him to be made like unto us. Now here's where it gets deep. Jesus is moved. He's in heaven. He's enjoying everything. And then finally he sees man go into this dilemma. He has a plan of salvation that was already set, but now that the wound of sin has taken place, now the plan of salvation goes into action. It's very similar to our hands. Right now, you look at your hand, your hand is healthy and fine. But there's a plan of salvation in your hand. Once you cut your hand, the plan of salvation goes live. It goes into action. Blood platelets, white blood cells, fibrins, and all of these things start to come together to save the, save the hand from the wound and bring healing. It's the same thing. From the beginning of time, plan of salvation was in place. Once the wound of sin took place, plan of salvation goes live. It goes into action. And now Christ says, in order to save man, I must be able to take on his flesh. I am tempted to do a whole study on what does it really mean when Jesus took on our flesh. The reason I'm tempted is because it's such a deep study that depending on where the heart is, you can fight against truth. I'm going to let God settle it in my mind whether to go forward, but I'm just telling you, I'm very tempted to go through a whole study on the nature of Christ. Now, what we know is that he became man. He died, but watch this, Zechariah 13. This, this is post-descension. This is post-crucifixion. This is post-ascension back into heaven. What does the Bible say about Jesus in Zechariah 13? In Zechariah, the 13th chapter now, the text says this next. Zechariah, we're looking at the 13th chapter, and now we're going to consider verse 6. Zechariah 13 and verse 6. Talking still about the lovely Jesus, still talking about him now. He's already come down. He's already died. He's already ascended. And now, here's a statement that's being made, not about Christ on earth, but Christ in heaven. It says in Zechariah 13 and verse 6, And one shall say unto him, What are these what? What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. My brother called me one time and said, Dwayne, you're such and such. And he's called me a name. And he knew that I was going to chase him if he said that to me. And Vernon's, you know, he just said, Dwayne, you're da 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 And I was like, what? What'd you say? He was like, you're da 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 And he called me this name. And I was like, that's it. And I started chasing my brother around the house. I'm running and I'm about to catch him. And Vernon runs in the den and grabs the door and closes the door behind him. And I remember I reached my hand out and my hand smashes through the glass. 
and it's like, it perf it's like a piece of the glass perfectly goes like this. And my arm just went, and it just ripped the flesh off of my arm. I remember being in so much shock watching my flesh dangling off my arm and seeing my bone. And I was like, what do I do? <laughs> Literally, because I'm just bleeding all over the place. That happened when I was 12 years old. I am 50. And if y'all see me in a short sleeve shirt, now everybody's going to look at me the next time you see me in a short sleeve shirt. You know, let me see the wound. You can still see the imagery of that wound. Do you know that when we are redeemed from this earth, every defect will be removed from us? You're not going to see that scar anymore. Some of you who have your wounds in different places, they're going to go away. Your bodies are going to be perfect, but there's going to be one body that will be imperfect. There will be one body that will still carry the imagery of its wounds to the point that the question will be asked, what are these wounds that are in your hands? And Jesus will say, oh, yeah, these, these were the wounds I received in the house of my friends. He carries those wounds with him. You know what that told me? That means, wait a minute, Jesus becoming our brother in humanity forever. Jesus, when he made the decision to step down, that wasn't like, yeah, yeah, I'll just do that, but I'll be back in a minute, and I'll be back to my original self. Jesus literally covers himself with humanity for the ceaseless ages of eternity. When he made the decision to become a human, that we might be saved. That was a forever decision. That now he was human, yet still being divine. We're talking about the cost of the cross. Not only that, how about this one? The risk, Hebrews 4. Go to Hebrews 4 with me. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, what we need to also understand is there was a risk. When Jesus was willing to die that we might live, the cost was that, number one, he made an incredible sacrifice because he forever has decided to become human so that he can always relate and connect to you and to me. But not only that, in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 now, let's notice what the Bible says here. Hebrews 4, we're looking at verses 15 and 16. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, now the Bible says this. If you're there, please say amen. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Praise God. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was not like other high priests. The Bible says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, go to Isaiah 13 and verse 9. What would have happened? What would Jesus had become if he sinned? What would you say? What do you become when you sin? A sinner. Wait a minute. Just, just so I can make sure the congregation, I'm going to make sure I'm in the right congregation. What, what do you become when you sin? Are you a sinner before you sin? Yeah, you sure? 
Are you a sinner before you sin? Wow. I think you're sealing my decision that that nature of Christ study needs to be done. I think we're going to prepare ourselves for it. The answer is emphatically no. You are not a sinner before you sin. You are not a sinner just because of a nature that you have. You can have a sinful nature and not be a sinner. Will one day God have a people that will have victory over sin? Is there anybody that doesn't believe that? So watch this. If we have victory over sin, when we have victory over sin, do we still have a sinful nature? So is it possible to have a sinful nature and not sin? Of course. Now watch. If Jesus would have sinned, could he be tempted? Yes or no? So could he have sinned? Yes or no? You sure you're okay with that? Yes, this is good. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in all points like as we are. Wasn't that a clear statement? So was Jesus tempted? Now, brothers and sisters, if you can't sin, how could you be tempted? Tempted to do what? The only thing you could be tempted to do is to sin. So if Jesus was tempted, that means he could have sinned. Are you following that? What do all sinners get according to Isaiah 13? In Isaiah 13 and verse 9, what does the Bible say? Isaiah, we're looking at chapter 13, and now let's go ahead and let's consider verse 9. We're talking about the risk that Christ took so that we might be saved. In Isaiah 13, the Bible says in verse 9, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. When God comes, who is he going to destroy? Sinners. Who are sinners? People who sin. Now watch this. That means that when Jesus took on our humanity, he took it on to such a point that if he would have failed and sinned just once, it wasn't only that we would be hopeless, he would have been hopeless. Are you following that? God loved us so much that he took the ultimate risk just so you and I could be saved. If he failed just once, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, this is one of the reasons why I appreciate stories like uh, Rem Remember the Titans, you know, this football team in the 1970s, high-level bigotry, you know. I, I honestly believe God puts these stories, God allows these stories to exist just to give us a glimpse that if humanity can do that, what's impossible for me? The story of Remember the Titans is simple. It's a black coach that he's been put in charge of a mixed-race football team. Everybody expected him to fail. They gave him the job just to appease a bunch of people that kept crying for white-black equality. And they put him in there, but they put him in the worst situation. They knew he's going to fail. 
he's going to fail. So literally, he takes these boys out, and they go on their training, and these guys hate each other, black versus white. They hate each other. By time Coach Boone comes back from training, black and white guys are sitting together singing songs and loving one another. The parents and everybody were shocked. This is a true story. Right there in Virginia in the 1970s. And the parents were shocked. And here it is that as all of this is going on, they go to the coach, one of his friends, and says, listen, man, they set you up. They didn't even think you'd make it back from training. They have decided that if you lose just one game, they're going to take your job away. And he literally was like, so wait a minute. Me and my family move here. We get a house. We get everything. And you're telling me I lose one game and we lose everything. And they said, yep. And you know what he did not do? He did not go to his team and say, look, guys, I'm under a lot of pressure. If y'all lose one game, I'm done. He never even told them the story. All he did was he trained them to the best of his ability. And do you know they went through that whole season and did not lose one game? Now, God allows that little story to say, now, if they can go through what appeared to be an impossible situation and not fail even once, why is it that we struggle so hard to believing that when Jesus came to this earth, he could have absolutely failed? But it was because of his disciplined life. It was because of his communion with God that he was able to remain faithful that he did not fail, not even once. And guess what? He left that as an example for you and me. We need to understand, beloved, Jesus could have sinned. He, had he sinned just once, there'd be no hope for us or himself. That beautiful bibliography, that wonderful write-up of the life of Christ in Desire of Ages says it like this. It says, Satan in heaven had hated Christ for his position in the courts of God. He hated him the more when he himself was dethroned. He hated him who pledged himself to redeem a race of sinners. It says, yet into the world where Satan claimed dominion, God permitted his son to come a helpless babe subject to the weakness of humanity. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it at the risk of failure and what? Eternal loss. I guarantee you, sit down and read things like this and ask God, why would you love me like that? Like, you see what I do. You see what I'm about. You know what's going in in my heart. You know what I've done to you and you know what I've said about you. Why would you do that for me? I believe in second witnesses, and there's a beautiful manuscript release that says, had there been the least taint of sin in Christ, Satan would have bruised his head. As it was, he could only touch his heel. Had the head of Christ been touched, the hope of the human race would have perished. Divine wrath would have come upon Christ as it came upon Adam. Christ and the church would have been without hope. We talk about the Council of Peace. 
Can you imagine the Father and the Son coming together? Listen, you know we're going to cre create humanity, and we know that humanity eventually is going to rebel. And Jesus says, Father, that's all right. I'm willing to die the death that they should die, that they might live the life that I could live. The Father says, Son, you're willing to do that? Jesus says, Yes, I am. And the Father and the Son agree. And as the Son gets ready to walk away, the Father calls the Son and says, Son, remember this. If you fail even once, I will have to destroy you. And Jesus looks at the Father and says, it is well. I love Dwayne that much. You put your name there. He says, I love you that much. That if I got to die and lose out on eternity, can you understand a little bit better how Moses was reflecting the loving kindness of Christ? That when he says, Father, they have committed a great sin, please forgive them. But if not, blot my name out the book. Jesus loved us so much, he did not even want to imagine going through eternity without us. This is the love of God. This love is what draws people and makes them say, I want you to be my God. Finally, the suffering. The suffering. The cost of the cross. We're talking about the cost of the cross. The suffering. Luke 22. Go to Luke 22, verse 44. In Luke 22 and verse 44, let's look at that suffering. In Luke 22 and verse 44, the Bible speaks to the suffering of Christ. Three things to consider whenever you think of the cost of the cross. Consider the sacrifice. This is what God wants us to present to humanity. Consider the sacrifice. Consider the risk that he took but also considering the suffering that he endured. In Luke 22 and verse 44, the Bible says it like this. The Bible says in Luke 22 and verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Blood vessels are popping and mixing with his sweat. In recent times, there's a few people who have undergone this same degree of turmoil, internal turmoil and stress, and it killed every single one of them. And here it is that Christ goes through it, and he's still alive. Being in agony, he's praying more earnestly, to the point that great drops of sweat are coming down. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, and you know, the reality of why Christ, you're going to 2 Corinthians 5, the reason why Christ was so stressed over this situation is because for the first time in his existence, the Father is going to look at him in displeasure. First time in his existence, and it was crushing him. To break the heart of his father was crushing him because he now is going to become something, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, what did Jesus become? What was he about to become? As he's going through this stressful situation and getting ready to go to the cross, he understood what he's about to be the representative of. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin." For us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ literally became sin for us. Now, sin separates from God. Isaiah 59, 2. The first time, the suffering of Christ. You know, after the children's story, 
our dear storyteller, she separated from her precious little baby just for a moment. And all of a sudden, I heard a cry. And I heard a cry. And, and I'm telling you, you can learn a lot through children, family. I heard a cry. And the cry was so loud that it got my attention. Because it wasn't like the church was quiet. We just finished having a children's story. The children are walking back, and things are going on, and people are talking, and so on, and music's playing. But here it is that I hear this cry. And so I look back, and I see my little friend there. And he's crying and running to her because they separated just for a moment. Jesus could not see beyond the tomb. He did not have the full assurance in his humanity that everything's going to work out and be all right. And while being afraid of possibly being eternally separated from the Father, can you imagine that while it's killing him and causing all this suffering, he says, but for Dwayne, I'll still do it. Put your name there. I'm telling you, family, the reason why our hearts get so hard towards God and religion is because of all the things we spend time in, we don't spend enough time contemplating the cost of the cross. This is why religion becomes nothing to us. We sin, we don't even have convictions about it. We do all sorts of stuff, and we have no problem with it. We say it's normal, this is life. We don't understand our sins cause this. Why do we so boldly do it? Some of us watch movies with profanity in it, and, and, and we know it's wrong, but we don't care. We listen to music with all of its foul suggestions, and it's like we don't care. We can mistreat each other, and it's like, so look, I got to do what I got to do. I got to move on, and we just don't care. I'm telling you, family. That is the sign of an individual that took their eyes off of the cross. That is a sign that we have, we've been misdirected. We've redirected our thoughts. We're practicing and meditating upon religiosity in many ways. But we're forgetting the main thing. And all along, God says, I want to remind them, this is how much I love them. Jesus says, I love them so much, I sense the eternal separation from God that the lost will feel. That's what he was feeling. This is what the lost are going to feel. The lost are going to feel this. And Jesus was going through that, and he did all of that just for you and for me. You see, the Bible shows, forgive me, I saw some of you get your cameras up there. I want to be edifying as much as possible. Remember, family, throughout Jesus' earthly pilgrimage, I mean, I think about this love of Christ towards me. Throughout his pilgrimage, he was misunderstood, rejected, hated, mocked by his family members, considered possessed by the devil, beaten brutally, and killed. I mean, like, this, is, this, is, this was his life. This is what he went through. Day by day. Just for me, just for you. It goes on to say, yet in the midst of all of this, John 13 and verse 1. Turn there. We're wrapping it up. In John 13 and verse 1, what does the Bible say? John 13... In verse 1, the Bible says in John 13 and verse 1, though Jesus was going through all of this, beloved, 
It says in John 13 and verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Even though misunderstood, even though rejected, hated, mocked by my own family, considered possessed by a devil, beaten brutally and murdered, yet I will not let any of this impact my love towards them. Everlasting love. I have loved them with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness. Brothers and sisters, when I think about how many marriages are broken in the church, loving kindness can solve that problem. When I think about how many relationships amongst mem members in the church are broken and damaged, loving kindness can solve that problem. God's loving kindness. The Bible says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This, kind, this, this kindness towards us, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. You know, in Ministry of Healing, I want to give you this as a tip. When you think about helping people, how many times have you ever uh, seen somebody who, who asks for help or needs help, and we say to ourselves, I will give them what they, what, they, uh, what they are worthy of. In other words, the limit or the depth of the help we will give somebody is based on what we believe they are worthy of. How many of you have ever operated like that? How many of us have ever operated like that? It's hard, right? It's hard. Yeah, we go like this. I get it. But listen, we've operated like that. Do you know the chapter Helping the Tempted in the book Ministry of Healing says that when someone needs help, we are never to ask, are they worthy? But how can I help them? Can you imagine if, that, if, the, if the mind of Christ had possessed all of us? We would never ask, are you worthy? But we would ask, how can I help them? Now, we might say, they are so unworthy. They did this and this and this and this and this. And you know what God does? He's like, right. They did, they did how much? This, 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 this. How? Anymore? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they did this and this and this and this and this. And God says, okay, finish. Little war, you want to think about it? Oh, they did this and this and this. And this, and God says, all right, I counted about 14, 15 faults. God says, now, let's talk about how many faults you have done that crucifies my son afresh. Let's talk about how many times you knew what you were doing. And you knew what it's going to do to my son, who was completely innocent. Think it's more than 14? You think it's more than 400? You think it's more than 4,000 faults? You better believe it. And God says, and just remember, I will treat you as you treat others. You gave me that permission. Forgive us our debts as, in like manner, as I forgive my debtors. So if I say, I'm going to forgive you five times, but the sixth time, I'm dropping the gauntlet on you. God says, no problem. I will forgive you five times, and the sixth time, I'm going to drop the gauntlet on you. Are you following that? 
Now, we know that that's dangerous thinking. But the point is, is that that's what happens when we get caught up in the feelings. But what does God say to protect us from that? He says, consider the cross. Consider the cost. He keeps bringing us back to this. And it's amazing how those who profess the most holy place can be some of the most hard-hearted people, when we should be some of the most soft-hearted people. The reality is this, beloved. How can I better appreciate God's loving kindness? Well, the Bible says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember, God says. How can I remember? Well, the Bible also says a voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way and they have done something. What did they do? They forgot the Lord, their God. God's, God's people have a tendency of forgetting where we came from. We have a tendency of forgetting the loving kindness that God sheds upon us. We have a tendency to forget that. And so what does God tell us to do? Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. I'd like to make a recommendation. Think about the times God has shown his loving kindness towards you. I mean, you know, just wholly undeserving. And yet he still was blessing. And I would like to recommend that you do this. Review God's promises for yourself. Review what he has promised in his word. Review what he has shown you. Review what he has done for you. And then after you do that, I would like to recommend, write them down in your daily gratitude journal. Have a book of some sort that you write down the victories, the blessings, the loving kindness that God shows towards you because God's people have a tendency of forgetfulness. We have a tendency, family. We all are stricken with the same disease. We all have the same weakness. We forget where we came from. We forget how wicked and terrible and unrighteous we were. And God says, the way that I can help with that is I want you to go ahead. Consider what I've done for you, what I've promised you, how I've given you breakthroughs. Then write them down. And you'll see some great things take place. How can I demonstrate God's loving kindness? Well, the Bible says it like this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We can choose to do that against our worst offenders. Why? Because I was God's worst offender. It's very simple. It's not easy. Did I say it was easy? No, I said it's very what? I said it's very simple. It's very simple. The principles are simple. We need to pray and say, Lord, help me to act out on it. And God will help you to act out on it. We're told, let the cross of Christ be made the science of all education, the center of all teaching and all study. Let it be brought into the daily experience and practical life, and so will the Savior become to the youth a daily companion and friend. Every thought will be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The cross. I'm appealing to each and every one of us. Let the cross of Christ be more central in your study life, in your thinking, in your reasoning, in how you interact with other people. Look at the quote. It says, let it be brought into the daily experience. How can I bring the cross into my daily experience? 
On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I could take that same mindset towards my offenders. When somebody does me wrong, somebody does you wrong, and we are thoroughly offended, we could say, Lord, forgive them. They don't really understand the direction that this is taking them. And we begin praying for them rather than getting angry and vengeful towards them. You know you, you know you just brought the cross into your daily experience? You just brought the cross into your daily experience. When Jesus was on the cross, he was still selfless. He's on the cross, but he's looking at his mom and he's looking at his friend. And he says, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your new mom. And he did that as an adult. Wouldn't it be nice to see adult youth still looking out for the best for their children? Be the best for their parents? Nowadays, adult youth feel like I'm an adult. Mom or dad, whatever sufferings y'all are going through, that's your problem. Jesus is so caring. As an adult, he's still looking out for the heart concerns and the practical needs of his mom. Would to God we had more young people like that, that do not look at 18 as a license to say, Mom and Dad, I don't need to listen to you anymore. Your counsels, I'll consider it, but I don't need to think much about it. I'll go ahead and do my own thing. And if this hurts you, I'm sorry that it hurts you. I'm just me right now. I'm just doing what me. I'm just feeling me. That is not the heart of a converted child. That is not the heart of a converted young man. When we are converted, we consider our parents even in our adult years. And we dare not do anything that breaks their heart while at the same time living our own individual lives as God has called us to live. There's so many lessons. Look for the lessons, beloved. Look for the lessons. Living in the end times, we of all people should understand this. In the sanctuary, which we believe in, blood was everywhere. And blood represents the, the cross. Blood was in the courtyard, blood was in the holy place, and blood was in the most holy place. The cross is never forgotten by the remnant. The cross is always to be central to our thoughts. It was blood that was even in the most holy place right there before the mercy seat. And the significance of the blood of Christ, cleansing, and sacrifice. That's what God's blood can do for you and for me. We never forget the cross. Always keep it central. The Bible makes it clear, walk in love as Christ has also loved us. And if you love me, keep my commandments. And God said, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Those people that make up the remnant should be the ones most acquainted with the cross, most acquainted with God's loving Kindness. I wonder if this exists today. We're hearing a lot of theory, but sometimes we say, Lord, is it, is it really happening? I close with these thoughts. This young lady right here had a pretty terrible experience. I appreciate these stories. This young lady, when Rachel Friedman's bachelorette party ended, she and her friends decided to go for a swim. Playfully, one of her friends pushed Rachel in, not thinking about how shallow the water was at the end of the pool. Friedman's head struck the pool's bottom, and she broke her neck, instantly paralyzing her from the collarbone down. Can you imagine you're with your friend, and you're just like, you know, hey, and you just push them, and here it is. She falls, and she breaks her neck, paralyzed down. I wonder what Rachel's attitude was towards her friend. Since that fateful push, Friedman's life has changed drastically. But she was able to go ahead with her wedding plans and marry her fiancé a year later. And she forgave the friend 
who pushed her in. I love her and have no grudge, the Daily Beast quoted from a question and answer session Rachel had on Reddit. I'm not saying it's right, but I've horseplayed by a, pool, by a pool and pushed people. I've pushed her. What happened was an accident. You see that attitude? I mean, something so life-altering, but yet she's able to still forgive and to accept it for what it was. Then you got this story, the stranger's email. Can you imagine this one? Christy Jones thought her marriage was perfect until the day she received an email from a woman she had never met. I want you wives to think about this. Pray that it never happens to you, but just consider the story. It, the email says, you don't know me, but I am no longer dating your husband. I'm sorry for any pain I caused your family, the email read. Then it says, I felt paralyzed. Christy told RealSimple.com, recalling the exact moment she read those words. Battling her denial, she called her husband at work, and he eventually admitted it was true. Adrian had had a four-month relationship with a woman he'd met at his job as a car salesman. Adrian? Adrian's a good guy. I'm sure this will never be his story. Forgiving him was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, said Christy. But his honesty made it easier. The two later went on to renew their wedding vows, and Christy said that today our marriage is stronger for it. I have no regrets. The loving kindness of God still exists in the hearts of people. Anita Smith and her husband Ronnie moved to Libya because we saw the suffering of the Libyan people, but we also saw your hope and we wanted to partner with you to build a better future, Anita said in a letter published on vergenetwork.org. Ronnie was a chemistry teacher in a Benghazi school. On December 5th, 2013, it all ended during Ronnie's morning jog when he was shot and killed by an unknown gunman. In Anita's letter, she addressed her husband's attacker saying, I love you and forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Real stories, real people, real love. It was a cold night in February of 2007 when the car holding Chris Williams and his family was hit by a 17-year-old drunk driver. Immediately, Chris checked on his children in the back seat and quickly realized his 11-year-old son and 9-year-old daughter had died. Then, as he watched his pregnant wife sitting next to him exhale for the last time. Meanwhile, Williams was in so much pain he could barely move his arm to turn off his car's engine. However, before he had even been rescued from his car, before he had been rescued from his car, Williams told the Desecrate News he had this thought, whoever has done this to us, I forgive them. I don't care what the circumstances were, I forgive them. He proved as good as his word going on to publicly forgive his family's killer and developing a relationship with him and his family. Today, Williams is a motivational speaker sharing his incredible story of healing and forgiveness and inspiring others to extend mercy and forgiveness as well. A white female police officer according to the story, says she walked into the wrong apartment, thought she was going into her apartment, went into another man's apartment, and shot him dead. Botham Jean. 
It made top news in America just a few years ago. And when at the trial, when they were going to sentence her to prison, the statement was made by Botham Jean's brother. He said, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? Brant Jean asked the judge after telling Geiger that his main desire wasn't for her to go to jail, but to give your life to Christ. It caused an uproar. Some people felt like that shouldn't have been done. One person said, this is a definition of living Christ, of living like Christ would like you to live. And another person said, why do black folks always have to forgive? We can have a conversation about black folk and our unconscionable forgiveness in the face of hate and violence. I don't get it. Caused a split. Your acts of loving kindness will not always be received by everybody, and some people will call you a fool for it. But brothers and sisters, I just simply want us to understand the plan of salvation begins by the love of God drawing us. Consider the cross. And if we have faded away from Christ, even though we're baptized members of the church, Jesus is calling us back to his arms, back to himself. And what's the best way to come back to Christ? Consider the cross. My question to you is this. How many of us in this room could say, I have not made the cross of Christ central in my teachings, in my thoughts, in my devotions, but from this day forward, by his grace, I will do so that I will once again see that love rekindled and renewed in my heart and by his grace be drawn to him. If that's you, would you stand to your feet with me? I believe and I know that the Lord will help us. And as you stand, I want you to know that Jesus stands with you and he will help us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you, dear God, that this is how it all begins, and this is how it is maintained. Lord, I pray that you will help us to contemplate the cost of the cross. And I pray that it might move our hearts as you have moved my heart. And Lord, I pray that it might help us to appreciate to such a point the cross of Calvary that we will surrender our lives fully to thee. Bless and keep us throughout the remainder of this day, for we do ask it all in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.